Chapter 18 of St. Charles Borromeo, A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 18 The Most Christian King, The Christian Doctrine. On August 10, 1574, Charles Borromeo set out to meet the young King of France at Monza. The ill fated, mad, misguided Charles IX had passed away. He whose memory will ever inspire loathing mingled with pity, whose brief reign is stained blood-red with the unspeakable, unthinkable horrors of the massacre of St. Bartholomew. He was succeeded by his brother Henry, then King of Poland, but who, on hearing of his succession to the throne of France, fearing his subjects would endeavor to detain him, fled from his small kingdom and passed through Italy on his way to Paris. Truth to tell, he dallied somewhat in the fair cities of the south, particularly in Venice, where he was right royally entertained but he was at last hastening and as he had not time to visit milan the archbishop thought it advisable to go to monza to meet him the pope was most desirous that these two the saintly ascetic and the frivolous prince should hold converse together for he considered that the strong personality of charles would exercise a beneficial influence on the character of the giddy young king he hoped the archbishop would succeed in instilling into the mind of the monarch his own deep religious convictions his high-souled ideals and noble aims, and that the new king would lead his people upward, onward, rescuing some from the spiritual lethargy into which they had fallen, saving others from the evils of heresy, and would himself, the eldest son of the church, restore to France her ancient splendor, making her in truth and in deed, as in word and in name, the eldest daughter of the church. Charles has described his meeting with Henry III in a very clear and decidedly characteristic letter. It is too long to translate in full, but the following extracts will give an idea of the thoughts and emotions he experienced on this memorable occasion. You asked me to give you a full and particular account of my interviews with the King of France, and the impressions I received during them, telling me it is the express order of His Holiness that I should do so. It is not easy to form a correct judgment when intercourse has been brief and superficial. I met Henry twice, and for a very short time, and we were only able to converse on ordinary topics. Nevertheless, I will do my best to obey the Pope's command. I visited His Majesty with the intention of doing and saying what the Holy Ghost would inspire me to do and say, in order to promote the greater honor and glory of God, and to forward the interest of Christianity. This is what passed between us. I expressed to him as clearly and secondly as I could the hope we felt that his future career would be in accordance with the noble actions of his past life, that he would act energetically and vigorously against the enemies of God and of the Catholic religion. He cordially agreed with my views, and promised to do his utmost to continue to merit our good opinion. He said, as he was, the most Christian king, he was consequently the first king of Christendom, and as such he considered it his duty to do all in his power to promote the great honor of God, particularly in his own kingdom. I was much edified by the gentle demeanor and grave courtesy of the prince. He is modest, pious, and sedate, and he has given undeniable proofs of possessing a religious disposition, for he has never failed to visit the churches at all the various places where he has broken his journey. I celebrated Holy Mass in his presence, and he assisted with much devotion. He told me that since his childhood he has gone to confession once a month and attended daily Mass. I sent him a crucifix with a message that it was under the standard of the cross he should fight in his dominions against the foes of the true faith. He was at breakfast when he received it, surrounded by courtiers and attendants. 
he took the crucifix kissed it devoutly and placed it before him on the table after looking at it with great fervor and piety that charles borromeo was deceived in the estimate he formed of the king of france is not surprising they only met twice and conversed together for but a very short time in those days henry the third was young charming attractive he had much natural grace and ability and it was impossible that even so sagacious and keen a judge of character as the reforming cardinal could detect the weakness and insincerity hidden behind his frank genial manner henry was devout all his life even when sunk to the lowest depths of sloth and degradation even when deceiving and deceived he had worn out the loyalty of his friends and had earned the contempt of his foes he prayed and fasted assisted at holy mass and was superstitiously devout it may not have been his fault that the evil genius of the house of Valois, his treacherous scheming pitiless mother catherine de medici so dominated his weaker nature that he yielded to her his manhood and his strength sacrificing at her bidding the noble ideals the lofty aims that had filled his soul when he and charles borromeo conversed together in the quaint old town of monza during his short sojourn charles performed there a memorable and well authenticated miracle a girl lived there who was in the opinion of all who knew her possessed by the devil she was generally in a state of the deepest melancholy but when she assisted at holy mass or was in the presence of the blessed sacrament she was seized by the most horrible convulsions foaming at the mouth and showing all the signs of demonical possession the unfortunate girl herself was quite aware of her dreadful condition her only hope was in the mercy of god accordingly when she saw the saintly servant of the most high passing her house she rushed out, threw herself at his feet, and implored him to bless her. Charles gave his benediction with great fervor, and even as he did so the evil spirit fled, and she was completely cured. On his return to Milan, Charles devoted much time to the perfecting of the confraternity of the Christian doctrine. This pious and most youthful association had been established some years previously in Milan by a priest of the diocese of Como named Castellino di Castello, a priest so innocent and childlike that he was called the father of purity. It was not surprising that one whose own character was sweet and simple, like that of a little child, should have formed a congregation whose chief object was the education of the little ones. It was composed mainly of laymen, and it was part of their role to gather little children together, to allure them from the frivolous, often dangerous amusements of the streets, and to bring them to the schools and colleges, where they were instructed in the truths of our holy religion these zealous and generous men were called fishers and wore the badge of a fisherman the children thus rescued from the evils of the streets became in their turn little apostles inducing their parents to frequent the sacraments and visit the churches charles while occupied in caring for the souls of the young milanese lads did not neglect to see after the salvation of the girls in fifteen thirty seven angela de mericia founded an order at brescia called the virgins of st ursula the principal object of these good nuns was to instruct young girls in the knowledge of christian doctrine later on they opened a convent at milan and charles did all in his power to aid them in their pious work giving them a definite role and helping them to extend their convents by encouraging young girls to enter the order such was the origin of the now well-known and widespread order of the ursulines and it was st charles borromeo who practically founded it for he saved it from dying of ination, and placed it on the high road to becoming one of the greatest and most useful congregations of devout women. It was not, however, until 1618 that it was formally declared a religious order. 
Another favorite confraternity of the zealous archbishop was that known as St. John Beheaded. This had for its object the care of condemned prisoners, and many of the nobility and of the most distinguished citizens were members. Another order that looked upon Charles Borromeo as its second founder was that of the clerks regular of St. Paul, generally known as Barnabites. Their constitutions required revision, and their general, Dominic Sully, who had been a student at the University of Padua at the same time as Charles, asked the archbishop to undertake the task. This he did, and soon many subjects joined the reformed Barnabites, and their monasteries were quickly filled with men of rare talent and piety. Sully was a most zealous and learned priest, wise and prudent and gifted with rare penetration. Charles often consulted him on knotty problems, and almost invariably followed his advice. We can easily imagine the good done in the diocese of Milan by all these pious confraternities, and we can picture to ourselves the reforming cardinal passing from one community to another, encouraging, exhorting, inspiring monks and priests, nuns and people with vigorous life and courageous confidence. The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up, might well be applied to Charles Borromeo, for prayer and fasting, penances and austerities, had worn him to a shadow. It was as though only his soul lived, that he was no longer flesh and blood, but a glorified spirit. So frail was the earthly tenement that held the indomitable soul. Only by a superhuman effort could soul and body still cleave together, and though Charles longed ardently to enter into life everlasting, he knew he had strenuous and difficult work to do before he could lay down the burden of life. So he steeled himself to carry on the numberless labors and good deeds he had put his hand to, going through the narrow streets and open squares of the fair city of the plains, like a seraph from paradise. Following the example of his divine master, he went about doing good. And he that sent me is with me, and he hath not left me alone, for I do always the things that please him. St. John, chapter 8, verse 29. End of chapter 18